Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Hello and a mighty fine good afternoon to you. Today is Thursday, February 18th, 2021. Last week and last night, we were unable to meet at GCA for our midweek service owing to weather difficulties. Well, today I am actually snowed in at my house. My driveway and the street in front of my house do not exist, and no one has been brave enough to uh, try the roads out yet, so we're all kind of sitting still and waiting for a bit of a thaw. So I decided to use this time wisely and teach the lesson that would have been taught a week ago last night because I don't really want to stop the flow of the teaching from the book of Isaiah. And so today we are going to look at Isaiah chapter 30 and chapter 31. Those two chapters have the same subject, which is Judah, the southern kingdom's reliance on a covenant, a deal, an agreement, a contract that they had made with Egypt. They were expecting Egypt to protect them from the Assyrian incursion. And God, through Isaiah, is telling Judah that they should have trusted him. He is their complete defense. And yet they went looking to men, other nations, other people to help them out. Now, it would be easy to think, well, that's just a piece of Judah's history. How does that apply to me today? What does that mean to me? Why should I care? Well, I certainly think that we are living in a time, not just in America, but in the world, where we keep thinking that the problems that we are enduring at this moment can be solved by people by other people. Just trust the people, trust the leaders, trust the folks who are in charge, and they're going to make everything okay. And yet God's reply to Judah seems appropriate to this moment, which is, trust me. I'll make things right. I'll take care of things. But as human beings continue to trust their own wisdom, their own societies, their own thought processes in order to solve their own problems, I think God is giving us the opportunity to just see our own failure after failure after failure because our reliance should be on him, which is usually the last place that people go. I know this is an old example, but I'm going to use it again. Back on 9-11-2001, when planes crashed into buildings in New York, suddenly the government here became very prayerful and having services at the National Cathedral, which barely exists anymore, 
and standing on the foot of the Capitol building, singing, God bless America, the national leaders were looking to God, praying to God, singing to God, praising God, hoping that God was going to help us because we were under attack, we were in trouble. But they didn't go seek after God until they sensed that they were really in trouble. And so, as a last resort, they turned to God. Their military might, their planning, their spy craft didn't tell them that this was coming. And so, now that we were under attack, we turned to God. When, in fact, God should be who we turn to in the first place, every day at the beginning of all circumstances. We should not wait until we are under attack to finally turn to God. I think that is the message here in Isaiah. It's very clearly the message that God is presenting to Judah, but I think that's also an important message for us here today. Human beings are not the solution to our problems. So let's start reading. This is Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord. It's never a good thing when God starts out by saying, Woe to you. And who are these rebellious children? They're going to be identified as Judah, as the southern kingdom. And what exactly was their rebellion? That they went and made an agreement with the Egyptians in order to protect themselves from the Assyrians. Which, by the way, turned out to be a pretty lousy agreement, considering that from 677 BC until 663 BC, Egypt was under the boot of Assyria. Assyria did conquer Egypt in 677, and so the Egyptian armies were not any great help in defending Judah. And again, Judah should not have been looking to Egypt. They should not have been looking to foreign nations, to Gentile nations, for their protection. They should have expected God to protect them, the same God who protected them from the Assyrian army in a single night, who did not allow the Assyrian army to conquer the walls of Jerusalem. God expected then that the residents of Jerusalem would trust him to protect them. But they went making their deals with the Gentiles. And so God said, woe to the rebellious children who execute a plan, but not mine. God had a plan for Judah, having delivered them into the promised land. His plan was to protect them. And indeed, his plan was to establish Jerusalem securely and bring about a glorious future that included the coming of Messiah to stand in the temple at Jerusalem. But Judah decided to establish a different plan, not the plan that God had in mind. So they execute a plan, but not mine. And they make an alliance, but not of my spirit. In other words, they made an alliance with Egypt, but that was not according to God's intention for Jerusalem. He expected them to be devoted to him singularly, 
and to trust him completely. And the end result of that was, God said, it was in order to add sin to sin. The entire reason that Judah was under fear of the Assyrian incursion was because they had sinned against God. They had ignored God's laws and precepts. They had begun intermarrying with outside nations like Solomon did and chasing after foreign gods other than Yahweh. And then on top of all that, rather than trusting God for their protection and deliverance, they looked to Egypt. So they added sin to their already sin. In other words, they were in the condition they were in because of sin, and their solution was more sin. So once again, get this right. The solution to your sin problem is not you. The solution to your sin problem is not other people. The solution to your sin problem is not get busy, do more work, follow the law closer. The solution to your sin problem cannot be in your flesh or anybody else's flesh, except the flesh of Christ, which he gave as a sin offering, as a propitiation. Therefore, the solution to your sin problem is Christ. The solution to your sin problem is that God established a covenant, an agreement by himself with himself in order to deliver you. And so it is necessary that you trust him. Anyway, back to the text regarding Judah and Egypt. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Now we know what the rebellion was. That without consulting with God, without coming to the prophets of God and asking what they should do under their dire situation, instead they took it upon themselves to go make an agreement with other human beings, to go make an agreement with Egypt in the hope that that would bring them refuge and shelter. Verse 3 says, Therefore, The safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt will be your humiliation. For the princes are at Zoan, and the ambassadors arrive at Hanes. These are cities in Egypt. The ambassadors and the princes of Judah went down to the cities of Egypt in order to establish their agreements with Egypt. Verse 5, Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them. In other words, God is going to shame Judah because they went and trusted a people who can't be any help to them. The second half of that verse says, Who are not for help, or profit, but are for shame, and also for reproach.
starting at verse 6, the oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev. Now, this is interesting. The Negev is the semi-desert region in the south of Israel. But even though the oracle is about the beasts in the Negev, it's actually about human beings, who God is referring to here as mere brute beasts, because they are unthinking, unreasoning, acting on instinct rather than on wisdom. And so Isaiah writes, the oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev, through a land of distress and anguish, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them. So God is saying that the people of Judah are going to wander through a wilderness, semi-desert area through the Negev, an area where there are, in fact, wild animals, lions, lionesses, vipers, flying serpents. And they're going to carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and camels, and they're going to take those riches to a people who can't actually help them. Verse 7 identifies who those people are. Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. And therefore, I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. That word, Rahab, is sometimes translated as arrogant. Sometimes it seems to be a reference to inability to do anything, a do-nothing. Either way, it is God calling Egypt arrogant and unable to do anything. What we have to remember is that God has already identified the Assyrian army as the method that he is using to punish his people. He says that Assyria is under his hand of control. He's utilizing them in order to dole out punishment. And when he is finished with them, he is also going to judge and punish them for the arrogance of heart with which they went attacking Israel. So there is nothing that Egypt can do to stand against the very nation and the very army that God is using for his own purposes. Egypt is arrogant and a do-nothing, and so she's been eliminated, exterminated, not only as an option, but as I already mentioned, Assyria is going to conquer Egypt. So then Isaiah is told, write these things down, get a tablet and write it down, so that when it does happen, you can show people that you predicted this before it actually occurred. This is verse 8. It says, Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll, that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. 
who say to the seers, you must not see visions. And they say to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us in pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. So God has identified the Israelites' primary problem. They didn't want to listen to the actual judgment of God. Instead, they would say to their prophets and seers, just tell us good stuff. Don't tell us the stuff about God being angry or God judging us. Don't prophesy what is right, what is correct. But you, Isaiah, make sure that you write this down. Write it on a tablet. Write it in a scroll so that when I do accomplish these things, you're able to use that writing as a witness to demonstrate that the word that you spoke was the word that actually came to pass. That was the actual true word as opposed to what the false prophets and the false seers are going to say and notice that they are going to say ear-pleasing things, pleasant words that are actually just imaginary. They are actually just an illusion. Sound familiar? Verse 11 the people of Judah continue talking to their prophets and seers, and they say, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. So God knows that the people of Israel don't want to hear about him anymore. Turn aside from the path. Turn aside from actual truth. Get out of the way. Tell us Stuff we want to hear. Tell us how good we are. Tell us how grand we're doing and that we're going to be okay and that Egypt is going to protect us and that we're not going to fall because of our own military might and strength and the agreements that we have made with the nations around us. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word, and have put your trust in oppression and guile, and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, and whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered, that assured will not be found among its pieces to take fire from the hearth or to scoop water from the cistern. Basically what God has said here, if you were to take any piece of earthen pottery, earthenware, and it broke, you would still have at least a piece of it, a shard of it, that you could utilize as a tool for like lifting coals up out of a fire so you didn't burn your hand or even scooping water up out of a cistern, God says that he is going to so completely shatter them that there's not even going to be any small shards left. It's all going to be brought down to dust. It's going to be the smashing of a potter's jar. It's going to be, he said, this iniquity will be to you, their guilt, their iniquity in searching after Egypt instead of after God is going to be to them like a breach that's about to fall. In other words, the walls that protect any city in the Middle East 
If there was a breach, if there was a hole in the wall, if there was a place where the enemy armies could come through, then the wall was going to fall, like a bulge in a high wall, whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant. So God is prophesying destruction for Jerusalem, which, even though it didn't come about as a result of the Assyrian army, does come about as a result of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, and they are going to be taken into their 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And when that all happens, when that all occurs, Isaiah will have already written it down so that they can see that God gave them fair warning. God sent them honest and true prophets, but they didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear about God's judgment. Instead, they wanted prophets who would tell them good things, positive things, build me up, make me feel good about me. And so God says that sin is going to be your collapse. Verse 15, for thus says the Lord God, Yahweh, Adonai, the Holy One of Israel. He has said, in repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. As opposed to trusting in military might, horses and warfare and chariots, instead of relying on the deals and agreements that they had made with Egyptians and foreign nations, their real strength would have been to simply trust God. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In changing your way, in recognizing, in turning 180 degrees from the course that you are on now, and instead understanding that God is your strength and your protection and resting in him, that's where salvation is going to come from. In this instance, in this context, God is talking about salvation from the Assyrian armies, and indeed from all of the enemies of Israel. But it's just as true today that it is not your strength, it is not your might, it is not your flesh, it is not your ability to keep yourself that is going to result in your salvation. Instead, repentance and resting, as the writer of Hebrews says, in Sabbathing, in the finished work of Christ, that's where salvation comes from, in quietness and in trust. That's your strength. The best way, the strongest way, the only effective way to be truly, genuinely delivered from your enemies, including the enemy of death, is to trust in God through Christ. It's our nature to think that we need to do something, we need to get busy, we need to cover ourselves, we need to solve our own sin problem, and that attitude is as old as Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves and running away from God. And that's the same thing that Judah was doing, attempting to make deals with Egypt and running away from God, not wanting to hear God's word, wanting to find prophets and seers that would tell them what they wanted to hear, but don't tell me about the Holy One of Israel. 
And that's why the Holy One of Israel responds by saying, trust me, that's your solution. I find it remarkable that at this moment, while God is handing out woe to these rebellious children, that he also takes the time in astounding grace to tell them where their real security is and to instruct them yet again, despite their rebellion, to instruct them yet again that he is the God who is their deliverer. And all they need to do is trust him. In repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. In other words, no, rather than trust you, we're going to rely on our own strength. We're going to rely on animals, strong horses, chariots. We're going to flee, we're going to fight, we're going to deliver ourselves. And so then God says, therefore, you shall flee. They're not going to flee in a good way. They're going to flee away. They're going to run for cover as their enemies come down on them. Therefore, you shall flee, and you will ride on swift horses, and therefore those who pursue you shall also be swift. Yeah, you're going to do just exactly what you wanted to do. Had you trusted me, I would have delivered you. I would have protected you. But instead, I'm going to make sure that you do flee, and I'm going to make sure that your enemies move even faster. Verse 17 describes the kind of terror they're going to live in. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one man. You shall flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. What that language means is You're going to flee at one of your enemies. A thousand of you would flee at the sight of any singular one of them. And so I'm going to make sure that there's at least five of them. So you're going to be fleeing from the overwhelming fear of your enemy. And that is going to make you an insignia. That is going to make you a sign to all the other nations like a flag on a hill, like a signal on the top of a hill that everybody can see, you're going to be an insignia. You're going to be my writing in the history of planet Earth. You're going to fall, and everybody's going to see it, and they're going to recognize that you fell because of your lack of trust in me. You're going to fall even though you made your deal with Egypt, even though you trusted in your own strength and military might. You're going to fall nevertheless, and that is going to be a sign, a signal, a flag to all nations that God, the real God, can both save his people and judge his people. And then verse 18 again takes this really interesting, gracious turn. The same way that God graciously instructed Israel to turn to him, he says in verse 18, therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord 
is a God of justice, and how blessed are all those who long for him. So that's the answer. That's the solution. The solution is right there in front of their hard hearts, right there in front of their blinded eyes, right there written down by Isaiah, but they refuse to look at it. They refuse to understand it. They refuse to read it. And yet God doesn't change. God remains gracious because they are his people, and he would rather treat them with unending grace. He would rather treat them in kindness and long-suffering. But he is also a just and a righteous God. And so he judges them in order to satisfy, in order to demonstrate that he is, in fact, a God of justice, a God of righteousness, and a God who is perfectly willing to judge. His righteousness, his holiness, his perfection demands judgment against their rebellion. But he's perfectly willing to be gracious to them. All they have to do is pay attention, repent, trust him. How blessed are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Here again are these promises of restoration despite Israel's rebellion. It's amazing. God doesn't change his mind or his intention for Israel. Instead, he is teaching them. He is instructing them, and he is going to bring them back to himself. O people of Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry, and when he hears it, he will answer you. You know, the book of Zechariah says, that when Christ returns, they are going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep over him like a mother weeps over her only child. There's going to be a time of national repentance within Israel. There's going to be a time that they cry out to God because they recognize their own guilt in being the very people, the very nation who crucified the Messiah. And when they cry out, He's surely going to be gracious to them. He's not only going to bring about repentance and bring about deliverance, he's going to bring about his own grace to them and for them. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, in other words, even though he has judged you, your teacher will no longer hide himself but your eyes will behold your teacher. So God's judgment on Israel is for the purpose of instructing them because at this point, God refers to himself as their teacher, their instructor. He is teaching them to trust him. He is teaching them to have confidence and faith in him. He isn't losing them. He is instructing them. He is still their God. He is still their father. They are still the chosen of God. And so he is, as the writer of Hebrews says, 
He is instructing them whom the Lord loves. He chastens. He scourges every son that he receives. And that's exactly what he did to Israel. This is a consistent personality profile. This is exactly how God is. This is what God is like. God instructs his own. He teaches his own. He will correct his own. He will take them through the troubles of this life in order to bring about confidence and faith in him. He always has done it. He is doing it. And that's the way he works. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. He's going to take the scales off their eyes. He's going to give them a spiritual heart and take out their stony heart and give them that heart of flesh. He's going to give them the ability the same way that he blinded them, he's going to give them the ability to see him, to behold him, to comprehend him, to understand that he is the one who took them through all this. Because after all, he wrote it down beforehand so that they would recognize that it is the very God of Israel who took Israel through these things in order to teach Israel. And your ears are going to be opened, are going to be unstopped, and your ears will hear a word right near you, right behind you, saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. In other words, should you vary off the path that God has determined for you, you will hear a voice right there behind you, the very voice of God speaking to your conscience by the Spirit of God, working as a governor in your life. You will hear him say, no, no, this is the way. Walk this way. Follow these ordinances. Follow these directives of God. Don't go off to the right or to the left because your teacher will faithfully instruct you. And verse 22, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and you will say to them, be gone. And then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground. And it will be rich and plenteous on that day. Your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also, the oxen and the donkeys, which work the ground, will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. In other words, your animals are going to be well-fed and well-cared for. Verse 25, And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. In other words, when God fights against your enemies, he's going to make sure that you are taken care of, that you have plenty, that you have running streams and so much good food that even your animals are well cared for and you'll have plenty of rain and plenty of bread Verse 26, and the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun 
and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days on the day that the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has afflicted. So much of what's described in verse 26 sounds like what we read at the end of the book of Revelation and the new Jerusalem, when there's going to be no sun or moon because God himself is going to be a light for day. But also at the end of that verse, the Lord will bind up the fracture of his people and he's going to heal the bruise that he himself has afflicted. Now, the best way to understand that concept of God both bruising and healing Israel is to read Jeremiah 30. And so that is exactly what we're going to do, at very least the first half of that passage. Jeremiah chapter 30 begins, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, and there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Obviously, that is a direct reference to what Jesus refers to as the Great Tribulation, that time of trouble that's coming in which God is going to correct, judge, punish Israel. But that's not the end of the story, because verse 8 then continues, after having said that Judah and Israel will be saved from the time of Jacob's distress, the time of Jacob's trouble, we read, And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. And they will serve the Lord, their God, and David, their king, whom I will raise up for them. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be quiet and at ease, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly. 
and will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, Your wound is incurable, and your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy. Notice that I have wounded you. I have wounded Israel with this incurable wound, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable. Because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And those who plunder you shall be for plunder, and all who prey upon you I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health, and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast, saying, It is Zion, and no one cares for her. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob, and have compassion on his dwelling places, and the city shall be rebuilt on its ruins, and the palace shall stand on its rightful place. And from there, from the very tents of Jacob, from the very city of Jerusalem, and from there shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be diminished, and I will also honor them, and they shall not be insignificant. And so, yet again, God promises the future restoration and glorious future of Israel. But he puts it within the context of, I'm going to punish you rightly and justly. I'm going to put a wound on you that is incurable by any human means, by any human standards. That is going to cause you to cry out, because nobody can do anything about how I am going to wound you. And yet God promises that he is going to restore them and restore them to health, and I will heal you of your wounds. So with that in mind, we can understand why Isaiah himself would predict the way that God would resolve the wounds of Israel. He says that Christ himself is going to bear the wounds of Israel. Remember that Isaiah is a prophet to Israel. And so when he says, by his stripes we are healed, he's talking about the healing of Israel because of the punishment that Christ took. So the restoration of Israel is done through Christ because Through him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. 
So God has promised this glorious restoration and this glorious future for Israel. It's going to be accomplished because Christ is going to take away their sin. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. They are going to repent and weep. God is going to hear them and restore them. God is going to place his spirit in them. He will be their God. They will be his people and their wounding will be healed as a result of what Christ himself did because it's through Christ, it's in Christ, that all the promises that God has made in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, the promises made to Israel, the promises made to Judah, those are going to be established and accomplished because of Christ. That's the big picture. That's what's being taught all the way through the Bible. All right, back to Isaiah. Chapter 30, verse 26. And the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days on the day when the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger, and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation, and his tongue is like a consuming fire, and his breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck to shake the nations back and forth in a sieve, and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin But you, Israel, you will have songs, as in the night when you keep the festival, and gladness of heart, as when one marches to the sound of a flute, to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard, and the descending of his arms to be seen in fierce anger and in flame of consuming fire, in cloudburst, downpour, and hailstones. For at the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with his rod. And every blow of the rod of punishment, which the Lord will lay on him, on Assyria, will be with the music of tambourines and lyres, and in battles brandishing weapons, He will fight them. So the contrast of these last few verses is rather than punishing Israel, when he is restoring and saving Israel, he is going to make sure that Israel is safe and sound and rejoicing and happy. And even as God is fighting the war and bringing out the rod of punishment against Assyria, nevertheless, in Israel, there's going to be tambourines and lyres. So there's going to be happiness in Israel, even as there is punishment on the enemies of Israel. For Topheth has long been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it on fire. 
What this verse appears to be indicating is that God is going to use the Assyrian army as a sacrifice. Topheth is an area in the Valley of Hinnom, just south of Jerusalem. And oftentimes that is the area where the children of Israel would go to sacrifice their own children, their own babies, to Molech, the Ammonite god. And so God is here saying that in that very place where sacrifices used to be made to foreign gods, he is going to sacrifice the armies of Assyria to himself. He is going to defend Israel. Even as he is destroying their enemies, he is going to give Israel plenty and happiness and singing and dancing as on the night that they keep their feasts. And yet, in the valley where they used to sacrifice to their foreign gods, that is the place that is prepared for the king, probably the king of Assyria. Enemy kings are going to be sacrificed in the very place that Israel used to sacrifice to foreign gods. And it's going to be a pyre of fire with plenty of wood, so a large burning fire and the breath of the Lord like an outpouring, like a torrent of brimstone is going to set the sacrifice on fire. And that takes us to chapter 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster, and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers, and against the help of the workers of iniquity. So the plan that Israel has established with Egypt, God is going to overturn it completely because he's wise, because he has all comprehension, because he understands why people do the things they do, and he's going to protect those that belong to him, and he's going to bring about disaster for the purpose of restoring his people back to the worship of himself. Yet he is wise, and he will bring disaster, and he does not retract his words. That's just such a very important sentence that I just want to camp on it for just a moment. Once God has said something, these things that Isaiah was told to write down in advance, just so that he could prove later on that this was the very word of God. This was the plan of God. God does not change his plan. He does not change his mind. If he says there's going to be a glorious future for Israel, then there's going to be a glorious future for Israel. After all, the way that he is going to bring about the glorious future for Israel is through the sacrifice of his son, the Messiah, who is also predicted in the book of Isaiah. And that is how God is going to heal the wound that he has put on Israel. 
And since Jesus did already come to the planet, and since he did already die, then we can assume that that payment price is already made for God to heal Israel. But first, there's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble. First, there's going to be the time of correction and punishment, that time when all men are walking around in such agony that they're like a woman going through labor. That time has not occurred yet for Israel and Judah. But when it happens, it's going to correct Israel and Judah in such a way that God is then going to restore them, reveal himself to them, open their eyes, open their ears, give them the ability to see and to understand his word and their own guilt. That's going to bring about national repentance. And every single bit of that is what is predicted in the very word of God. And God himself says that he is not going to change his mind. He is not going to retract his words. He's not going to go back on the promises that he has made to Israel. And that is regardless of what eschatologies or what theological systems human beings created over the last 2,000 years. In the New Testament, Paul says that the scripture is God-breathed. The scripture he was referring to is the Old Testament. Jesus himself said that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to establish what the prophets had already predicted, which includes that he's going to die for the restoration of Israel. And God does not retract that. Yet he is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. That's where we began today. This sermon, this look at these chapters, began with the declaration that only God can do the things that human beings just can't do. And so even to this very day, if we are looking to men to solve our problems, we're looking to the wrong place. We must look to God. We have to look to God, the faithful and true, unchanging God. He's the one who protects and establishes and feeds and comforts his people. It was true then. It's true now. The Egyptians are men and not God. And to this very day, I would say the same thing. Politicians are men and not God. Church leaders are men and not God. All human beings are just mere mortals, mere creatures, and they are not God, and only God can do what only God can do. The Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps, that's Egypt, will stumble. And he who is helped, that's Judah, will fall. And all of them will come to an end together. For thus says the Lord to me, As the lion or the young lion 
growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, will not be terrified at their voice, nor disturbed at their noise. So will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. That's such a great example. A lion, a young lion. If a lion were to catch a sheep and was devouring the sheep, it wouldn't matter if a band of shepherds came out and even yelled at the lion. The lion is just going to growl over his prey, but he's not going to be terrified by their voice. He's not going to be disturbed by their voice. He's going to continue eating. He's finally caught something to eat. So God says, considering that as the example, I'm not going to be afraid at any human who doesn't want my judgment to come. I am going to come and fight at Mount Zion for Jerusalem. That's what verse 5 says. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. And he will protect and deliver it. And he will pass over and rescue it. So that's a firm promise from God, who has just said, that he is not going to change his mind and he is not going to be warded off or called off from his intention to come and battle for Jerusalem, to protect and deliver Jerusalem, to pass over and rescue Jerusalem, the Assyrian armies, and in fact, the whole of all mankind, has no way to stop God once he determines to do something. He's going to be like a lion growling over his prey who just doesn't care if the shepherds don't like it. Verse 6. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. For in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your hands have made, as a sin. And the Assyrian will fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword not of man will devour him, so he will not escape the sword. And his young men will become forced laborers, and his rock will pass away because of panic, and his princes will be terrified at the standard at the flag, at God lifting up his voice, at God bringing about his army, which turns out to be the Babylonian army with which he's going to destroy Assyria, and they're not going to be able to stand. His rock will pass away because of panic, and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So how many times now has God said, the very God who doesn't change, the very God who doesn't change his word, the God who cannot be persuaded to do anything other than what he wants to do, how often now has he said, not only that he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah, but that he's going to fight for them. 
because Jerusalem is the place where he chose to place his name. And that is why, after the inception of the new heavens and the new earth, he establishes his mighty city where he dwells, and he calls it New Jerusalem, because it really is all about Jerusalem. His fire is in Zion. His furnace is in Jerusalem. By the way, let me just add parenthetically, Jerusalem, Zion, those are interchangeable terms. When you read Zion, you're reading about the very hill where Jerusalem exists, and that's the very place that God is going to continually defend. He's not going to change his mind about Israel. He's not going to change his mind about Judah. And the fact that they are currently scattered and under his judgment is exactly what the Bible says is how God is going to treat them, if that is not too convoluted a sentence. God has said over and over, he has it written in his word, that he is going to punish, he is going to scatter Israel and Jerusalem. But the promise of a glorious future does not change. And the church does not supplant those promises. The church is not Judah. The church is not Jacob. The church is not Jerusalem. The church is not Zion. The promises that God has made are specific to a specific group of people in a specific plot of land, and he is going to restore those people to their land because he made a promise all the way back to Abraham. And that is just what the Bible says. Okay, so that is Isaiah 30 and 31. Next week, whether we're gathered at GCA or whether I'm sitting here at my kitchen table, we will look at, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. There's a big change coming. And it's all going to come because God, who doesn't change his mind, has promised it. And he's going to accomplish it all through his son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the word and study the sovereign grace of God.